Well, it is good to be with you guys this morning. Uh, in, in the 1996 cinematic masterpiece, That Thing You Do, starring Tom Hanks and Tom Everett Scott, uh, the story is told of a fictional rock band from the 60s called The Wonders, or as they become known throughout the movie as The Oneaters. At the heart of the movie is uh, this group of small town Pennsylvania boys who stumble upon fame via their hit song, the movie title, That Thing You Do. Uh, and it's, the, the song is penned by their lead singer, Jimmy Mattingly. And if you've seen the movie, uh, you're, you're invested. Like, you're invested in, in these boys, right? Like, you, you want their band. You're pulling for them. Uh, they, they could be the next big thing. They could be the next, uh, the Beatles. Uh, but it, it doesn't take long to see that Jimmy has a different idea of what he sees the band and what it should be. The band, for him, is the vehicle for the genius of his songs, After all, he's the true talent, or so he believes. And despite the efforts of Guy, who's their drummer, trying to hold it all together, or Lenny and all his jokes as their guitar player, um, they, the the band uh, is not able to keep together. Spoiler alert, sorry about that. Uh, It's still a movie worth watching. But then they live up, really, to their name, uh, The Wonders. They flame out as quickly as they started as a one-hit wonder. Uh, You see, the unity that's built around a common purpose or mission can be just as quickly destroyed by pride. And Paul has a dream for the church uh, that he's sharing in his letter to the church at Philippi. He's calling them and he's calling us to the most grand purpose that there is, to the singular mission that all of us should have of following Jesus. And today, as we look at Philippians 2, in probably the most beloved passage in the entire letter, uh, Paul is going to plead with the church uh, that the key to the mission, the key to walking uh, in, in unison for the sake of Christ is humility. There, are, there is no place uh, for divas in the mission of God. So as we move through the text today, I want us to see three things. Number one, the unity of the church, number two, the humility of the saints, and number three, our lowly king. Let me pray for us. Father, we, that we could even come to you is astounding. We do not deserve your kindness to us. We do not, we do not even merit a look from you we do, not, we do not deserve um, your, your work in our life, your provision in our life, your care for us, and yet you give it and you give it lovingly, kindly, freely, all because of the grace that you have shown us through Jesus. And so Father, today would that wreck us? Would your words in the scriptures be so clear to us? Would we have soft hearts that would hear them? Father, would you speak uh, by your spirit, not my words, but would you speak your words to us? And would we hear? And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. So number one, the unity of the church. So let's let's remember for just a moment uh, the context of the passage. Paul is launching into chapter two. And remember, Paul didn't just stop and go, okay, now I'm on chapter two. Uh, the chapters and verses were added later. Uh, so Paul, as he continues on here, he's basically saying, if what I just said is true, then here's what you need to do. 
And so what did he say at the end of chapter one? He said, you're a citizen of heaven. And life as a citizen of heaven, living on earth, it's, it's gonna be difficult. And Paul's going, man, I, I'm actually in prison. So it's gonna be tough, but don't be frightened by the opposition. God's just using that too. But you're gonna suffer. You're in the same battle as me, Paul is saying. But guess what? In the end, death is gain. Death even is victory for us. So he's telling them, I'm praying for you. It's gonna be hard. And so now, if then, in all of that suffering, if in the midst of that, there's any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. So yes, our lives as citizens here will be hard. The struggle is real, as the young people say. Uh, yes, feeling politically homeless, that may be a little awkward. Yes, not giving in to sinful desires here, that may be difficult. Yes, enduring suffering and seeing death even as gain, that will be painful. But in your struggle, have you, in the midst of that struggle, have you experienced some of these things? He asks these three questions. Are, are you still in the midst of your struggle encouraged in Christ? When you're discouraged by the trajectory of the world around you, aren't, aren't you encouraged still ever more by Christ, by the promises that he has made? Aren't you encouraged by the new kingdom he's bringing? And aren't you consoled by his love? When you're in pain, aren't you comforted to hear the words that he's making all things new? That one day your weeping will turn to laughing. That the sufferings of the present age don't compare to the weight of glory that's in store for you. And don't you feel the fellowship of his spirit? In the midst of pain, don't you feel that he's with you? Even to the end of the age, Jesus says. To know you're never alone. That even your brothers and sisters are bonded to you by the very same spirit and they'll walk with you. And in all these things, don't you see his affection? Don't you feel his mercy? And of course, the answers, if you are in Christ, are overwhelmingly yes. Yes, I'm encouraged by Christ. Yes, he sustains me daily. And yes, it's amazing that he would dwell with us by his spirit and that we could feel fellowship amongst brothers and sisters in Christ. And so Paul's saying, if that's true, then be unified with your brothers and sisters. Be unified by the same thinking. Well, thinking about what? About Christ. By the same love. Love for what? Love for Christ. By the same spirit. Spirit of Christ. For the same purpose. The mission of Christ. Paul's talking to the whole church here. And he's saying, haven't you experienced all of these blessings? Isn't his comfort and his fellowship that he brings to us amazing? And stay together. Stay united. This, isn't, this sort of unity is not uniformity on third and fourth level issues. This isn't sharing all of the same preferences. No, this is supernatural unity. I've often thought one of the most beautiful things about the church is that it brings together people who would never, in normal circumstances, all be together. Like we would never have relationships, many of us. 
We're a collection of people from different walks of life, different personalities, different socioeconomic backgrounds, different races, different political leanings, but incredibly, together. One spirit with a common purpose, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. We live in a world right now that is saying, basically, you should find a group of people that who think exactly like you do about everything and hang out with them. Talk to them, listen to them, be on social media with them. And you know what that's doing to us? It's causing us to never have our toes stepped on by one another. To never be sharpened by someone who is just a little different than us. To never have the iron of our life sharpened by the iron of a brother or a sister who, who has a slightly different perspective than we do. Look, within the church, we, we do not and will not listen to all the same music. We, we may not vote the same. We may not see eye to eye on COVID or sports or climate change or schooling preference or favorite authors or evangelism styles. But what unites us is this. Hasn't the Lord been so kind to you? Hasn't he been so gracious to me? Hasn't he consoled us with his love? Nate, hasn't he given us fellowship with a spirit that, that we don't deserve? Jeff, don't we have a glorious common purpose? This is how we should feel with each other. And it, it's as though our inability to remain united together is all tied back to some sort of spiritual amnesia. That somehow the kindness of Christ in the gospel has become less important than our third and fourth level preferences. Be become less important than our thoughts about vaccines or about school choices. You don't agree with me about COVID, then we can't be united. If that's true, then maybe you haven't really been consoled by the love of God. Amen. If disagreements about social issues, about racial reconciliation have destroyed your unity with a brother or a sister, maybe you've forgotten the encouragement that is yours in Christ, the encouragement that is mine through Christ. Unity in the church is a direct response to the kindness of God to us. Do you know it? So now how do, how do we do it practically? What does that look like? Paul goes on to say, you want to be united. Here's, here's what you've got to do. You've got to go low. Number two, the humility of the saints. So he's going to say, haven't, haven't you really tasted these things? Have you really tasted encouragement and comfort in Christ? Here's what it's going to look like if you have. Verse three, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. Is there another two-verse combo in the Bible uh, that is so counter to the ethos of the current world? You want to experience unity? Consider others to be more important than yourself. Look not to your own interests, but to theirs. And okay, I mean, can we just be blunt for a minute? Like, I, I, I think our theology... It embraces sinfulness, right? It em we believe, as Jeremiah said, that the heart is deceitful above all things. Who can know it? We affirm the doctrine of, of depravity and human sinfulness. 
We find ourselves nodding with Paul when he says, man, the very thing that I want to do, I, I, I don't do. And the very thing that I don't want to do, that's what I end up doing. That hits home for us. We offer a hearty amen when we hear Paul's words, when he says at the end of his life, I'm the chief of sinners. It seems like we can articulate wickedness in our own hearts, theologically speaking. But at the end of the day, when we close the door of our home in our heart of hearts, do we not often think we're better than everyone else? I am the hero of my own story. Every day, the soundtrack plays as I walk through my life. Everyone else, a bit player. Everyone else, an obstacle or a help to me achieving or succeeding or winning or being adored. John Newton said it this way. So whatever it be that makes us trust in ourselves that we are comparatively wise or good, so as to treat those with contempt who do not subscribe to our doctrines or follow our party is a proof and fruit of a self-righteous spirit. Self-righteousness can feed upon doctrines as well upon works, and a man may have the heart of a Pharisee while his head is stored with orthodox notions of the unworthiness of the creature and the riches of free grace. Maybe, that, maybe you're going, man, that's, that's, that's too much. I don't really think that's me. I don't think I'm better than others. And, and maybe that's true. Maybe, maybe, maybe you actually think you're worse than others. There's this kind of reverse pride that just walks around, oh, poor me, don't you guys all feel sorry for me? I'm so bad. Um, but I think at the very least, isn't it possible that, that if you really looked at your life, you would notice that you just simply think and act way more about your own interests than thinking or acting about the interests of others? How does this sort of pride bear itself out? I would argue we so regularly don't even think of others that it's just not even, we're not even aware of it. Kids, I'll ask you guys, do you sit around and dream up every year when, when December's rolling around, you just sit around and go, man, I wonder what I could get for my brother. Is that what you think of as Christmas rolls up? Man, what could we do for my sister this year? What could we get for mom? Is that what you dream about? Or do you dream about, man, I got my list. Here's my list, mom. I typed it. Single space, four pages. <laughs> Adults, are you annoyed when you have to spend two straight nights serving somebody else, giving up your time? I would argue that we, we just don't want to. We don't want to commit time or energy to serving others. We're obsessed with our needs, our time, our schedule. We have a hard time even committing to a life group or to a Bible study. Why? I just got a lot of stuff going on. The fancy theological word for our unwillingness to consider others more important than ourselves is pride. I thought of it just a few of other ways that pride rears its head. I just wrote them down. These are just as much about me as about you. Uh, we're envious or comparative uh, or competitive with, with others rather than rejoicing when they succeed. We pity our lack of recognition after we serve. We refuse or really struggle to compliment others, to encourage them, to point out God's grace in them. We don't truly pray for the needs of the saints. We, in fact, we can't even remember from moment to moment what they even asked us to pray for because we just don't think about it after we walk away from them. 
We only show up to hang out with our friends when we like what they're doing. When we enjoy the topic that will be discussed. We only reach out to others when we need them, says the guy who just asked a lot of his friends to help him move this week. (laughs) But when they call for help, oh man, I'm sorry, I missed that text. I wish I had seen it. We serve as critics on the periphery of the church family rather than salt and light within it. We are served regularly, but rarely set aside time to serve others. Certain jobs just seem like, man, that's just, my time's more valuable than that. We excuse ourselves based on our intentions, and yet when we see someone else act, we judge them based on what we think their intentions were. And we're destroyed when others criticize us or when they critique us and we're angry at them when they fail us. How, how, how are all these things possible? How can I know the treachery of my own sin, theologically understand the wickedness of my own heart and yet still think that I'm better than everybody else, that I'm more important than everyone else? And if somehow you go, man, I, don't, I just don't think this is me. Maybe, maybe, maybe pride's just not my, my thing. Um, nearly every sin that tempts us is rooted in pride. And the antidote to pride is humility. What Paul calls considering others more important than yourself. J.C. Ryle, the Bishop of Liverpool in the late 1800s gave uh, this warning in his book, Holiness. He said, humility sees more evil in one's own heart than in any other in the world. And the, scripture are, the scriptures are replete with, with warnings about pride, exhortations toward humility. Ephesians 4, with all humility and gentleness and with patience, bear with one another in love. Romans 12, do not be proud. Instead, associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own estimation. And then I love this one in Mark chapter 9, uh, as Jesus is uh, hanging out with his uh, disciples And with the 12, it says this. He says, they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the way? Uh, But they were silent because on the way, they had been arguing with one another about who was the greatest. Sitting down, he called the 12 and said to them, if anyone wants to be first, he must be last and servant of all. He took a child, had him stand among them and taking them in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one little child such as this in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but him who sent me. C.S. Lewis said it, had this great quote. He said, uh, may God's grace give you the necessary humility. Try not to think, much less speak of their sins. One's own are a much more profitable theme. And if on consideration one can find no faults on one's own side, then cry for mercy, for this must be a most dangerous delusion. I think what this means is that when we feel that sort of pride welling up within us, when we begin to think of ourselves as better or smarter, holier than someone else, particularly about a brother or sister in Christ, it's supposed to hit us like a flashing light on the dashboard of our car. Danger, danger. The unity of God's people is at risk, danger. Or maybe the fellowship within your family is at risk. It's in jeopardy. 
Maybe one step further, maybe it's danger. The, the encouragement you once knew in Christ, it's not there. The forgiveness and the consolation that you once felt because of the gospel, your heart has grown cold, grown dull to the beauty of it. Because the gospel used to remind you, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. And so as the gospel message has been choked out in our own hearts, we begin to believe, you know, I'm something. God must be pretty impressed with me. And others should be too. In fact, these people aren't even serious about Jesus like me, so I'm gonna show them how great I really am. And now why aren't they serving? Why aren't they praising me? I've shown them, I've done it. Don't they recognize true greatness, true sacrifice? And before long, as self-righteous pride replaces the humility of the gospel, our humble service of our brothers and sisters and the unity we once had together is gone. And this is why we so desperately need not just humility, but we need the humble one himself. We need to look to him, to the lowly mind of Christ, which is number three, our lowly king. Verse five, he says, Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. So this is no longer just a plea for unity. Paul is turning to the preeminently humble one. As you try to set aside your pride and as you try to serve others, you're in really good company. You get to look to the example of your savior. And then Paul launches into a poem uh, into what is easily one of the most famous texts in all of the Bible about Jesus. It's really, it's really a song that he's singing here. And he says in verse six about Jesus, he said, Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. First of all, amen. Yes, we could have just read this passage today probably and just been adamant enough. What a, what a treatise on the person of Jesus. This passage, so amazing. So much uh, theology about Jesus, so much Christology. Jesus, his eternal existence in the form, the, the image of God. He was God himself, and yet he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, to be held onto, to be exploited. And then Paul says he emptied himself. Jesus gave himself willingly to take on the likeness of humanity. This, this idea uh, theologically is called uh, the kenosis from this Greek word, uh, kanao, which is translated emptied himself. He, he, he emptied himself. Scholars have wrestled with what does this mean? Like how did he empty himself? What, what did he empty himself of? Uh, did he give up his deity? Was he temporarily void of his power uh, uh, as God as he walked on the earth? And it seemed that the answer to that would be absolutely not. Paul says in Colossians 2, he said, for in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So he, he is still fully God. And yet Hebrews 2, verse 17 says, he had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest to make atonement for the sins of the people. He had to be like us. So he's fully man. 
Theologians call this the hypostatic union, which is a fancy way of saying Jesus is 100% God, 100% man. He isn't going back and forth from one to the other. He is the God-man. Such an amazing mystery. The incorruptible one. He took on flesh. Jesus took on our humanity. The omniscient one. And yet he would have to learn. The all-powerful one. And yet he would still grow weary and hungry. He had to eat to sustain himself. And yet he did all of this, as Isaiah 53 says, that our suffering king, that he might pour himself out unto death, that he would experience pain and suffering. And in all that, even knowing what he would face, he came willingly. He didn't consider taking advantage of his position as God to get out of suffering. He didn't exploit his divinity, Paul is saying. That's what we would have done. That's what you and I would have done. No, but he didn't. He came willingly. He came as a servant. At the end of verse seven, it says, and when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. Can we just take a minute just and marvel? Marvel with the apostle Paul that Jesus Christ, the eternally preexistent one who spoke the earth into existence, he was willing to empty himself, to lay aside his position. Why? Because you and I wouldn't give up ours. The, the king of heaven, he humbled himself because of your pride and mine. Jesus gave up his rights and he submitted to the father. He was obedient to death. Why? Because you and I would not be obedient because we demanded our own way. And he took the form of a servant. He washed feet. He came to serve rather than to be served. Why? Because of men and women like us who apart from Christ would rather dominate others. We would rather be served than to serve. And at the end of his life, Jesus' lungs collapsed and filled with blood because you and I would not die to our own self-righteousness. The exalted king went low and he went low for you. But this truth should not crush us. In fact, just the opposite. A truly Christian understanding of Jesus' suffering is liberating. He didn't just go low as your example, as if to say, try and be humble like me. No, he did it in your place. He did it for you. He did it for your failure. And now because of his death and because of his resurrection, I have been set free from self-centeredness. Because I'm forgiven, I can walk in meekness as one who no longer needs to be seen, as one who doesn't need to exert my strength and power over others. Why? Because the cross of Christ is the merciful incinerator of our pride. Charles Spurgeon says it so well. In fact, I'm just gonna let us listen to him say it. Uh, he says in this great uh, quote from him, he says, he stripped off first one robe of honor and then another until naked. He was fastened to the cross and there he emptied his inmost self, pouring out his lifeblood, giving himself for all of us. Finally, they laid him in a borrowed grave how low was our dear Redeemer brought? 
how then can we be proud? Stand at the foot of the cross and count the scarlet drops by which you have been cleansed. See the thorny crown and his scourged shoulders still gushing with the crimson flow of blood. See his hands and feet given up to the rough iron and his whole self mocked and scorned. See the bitterness, the pangs, and the throes of inward grief show themselves in his outward frame. Hear the chilling shriek, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? If you're not humbled in the presence of Jesus, you do not know him. You were so lost that nothing could save you but the sacrifice of God's only begotten son. As Jesus stooped for you, bow in humility at his feet. A realization of Christ's amazing love has a greater tendency to humble us than even a consciousness of our own guilt. Pride cannot live beneath the cross. Let us sit there and learn our lesson. Then let us rise and carry it into practice. The command isn't simply be more humble. Think less of yourself. No, before we are able to do such a thing, we have to look to Jesus. We have to allow his condescension to humble us. If we are going to serve others, we must first worship the servant king. And just so you know, this humble God man, that he's, a st he's still exalted as Lord, Paul ends his poem with a great flourish. He says in verse nine, for this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. And this exaltation here, just to pause, is this, is this about his uh, resurrection? Yes. Is this about his ascension into heaven? Absolutely. Our Lord was obedient to death on a cross, but God raised him from the dead, the scriptures say. And then he appeared uh, to, to, the, to the disciples and to 500 uh, plus others. And then he ascended into glory. And Romans and Hebrews both tell us that when his work was done, when he had sacrificed for sins, that he sat down at the right hand of the Father. So even now, he's serving you. He's interceding for you. You're God, you're king. And Paul longs for that future day as he talks about the one whose name will be worshiped and revered above all others. And he says in verse 10, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and on heaven, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He is the worthy one. Every people and tribe, every nation and tongue will kneel before the Lord. His power and dominion over all things make his suffering and his death all the more astounding. Ephesians 1 says, he exercised his power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at the right hand in the heavens and he subjected everything under his feet and appointed him his head over everything for the church. Are you trapped today by your own pride? Do you find yourself just unwilling to serve, unwilling to put others before yourself? You were never meant to bury that kind of glory. You were never meant to carry that on your shoulders. Pride is, at the end of the day, it's self-worship, self-glory. But Jesus the servant king, he is the exalted one. He is the one who receives glory. You, you are not that one. His name is above every name. Yours is not. Only he is Lord to the glory of the Father, but by his invitation, one day you will experience glory with him.
Because one day the servant king, the one who lowered himself, he'll ride victoriously in on a white horse. Not simply as a glorified man or as a spirit being, like many of the cults would believe. Not simply as a transcendent teacher, like some of the philosophers may say. And not just as some formless energy. No, he is still the glorified God-man, the son of God, the one who took on flesh. And he's a real man. He'll come with real dark skin of Nazareth, with a real Galilean accent and a real body, even now bearing the nail scars in his hand. And, and in all of that, Paul was not afraid to refer to Jesus with divine words that came straight from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 45, 22 and 23. Isaiah speaks the words of Yahweh as God says, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth for I am God and there is no other. By myself, I have sworn truth has gone out from my mouth, a word that will not be revoked. Every knee will bow to me. Every tongue will swear allegiance. This is true of Jesus. Christian, let us humble ourselves. Let us be humbled by the shadow of the cross. There are no divas in the kingdom. There are no shotgun callers amongst the saints. Only beloved sons and daughters of the king who by seeking to honor him, want to put everyone else first. And when every knee bows, we will all kneel together, unified, and we will join with all the saints, both, both now and before, to join in the worldwide worship of our humble King. Let me pray for us. Father, we, we are so unworthy. We are so unworthy of your love, so undeserving of your kindness to us. That you would reveal yourself to us, that you would make, us, make, make yourself known to us is amazing enough in, in itself, but that what you would make known to us is that you love us, that you care about us, that you're not simply going to crush us, but that you've given us mercy through Jesus. We don't deserve that, but you gave it to us. And would you help us? Would that floor us? And would our pride be squashed by it? Even now, Father, as we take communion together, would we see the cross again? Would we see the suffering that Jesus stood and uh, that he took on for us? And would it would it humble us and lead us to worship. Help us. We need your spirit to do this in us. We can't do it alone. In Christ's name, amen.